Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Resilience, adaptability, agility, pick your favorite word. I would say they are becoming, actually they have become essential skills for leaders today. And everybody is talking about it, about the change and the pace of change and so on. But here's the critical question for the day. In the face of change, is it better to stick? And by that, I mean persist, persevere, show grit, tough it out. Or is it better to switch? And by that, I mean change course, adapt, flex, shift your goals even. So which is better, stick or switch? Well, it turns out that's at a critical question that's at the heart of what it means to be agile. And that's what we want to talk about today. What is the science telling us about how to develop your own resilience and how to develop agility so that you make wise choices on sticking or switching? My guest today is Elaine Fox. Elaine is a PhD psychologist, author, and the head of the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Prior to moving to Australia, she founded and directed the Oxford Center for Emotions and Effective Neuroscience, OCEAN, at the University of Oxford. And it's a renowned research center exploring the nature of resilience and mental well-being. Um, Elaine is a cognitive psychologist by training, and she's a leading mental health researcher combining genetics, psychology, and neuroscience. And she also runs the Oxford Elite Performance, which is a consulting group bringing cutting-edge science and psychology to people at the top level of sport, business, and the military. Her 2012 book, Rainy, Brainy, Sunny Brain, was an international bestseller, but more importantly for today, the latest book and the one we're talking about is called Switchcraft, The Hidden Power of Mental Agility. So Elaine, welcome to the show. Hi, Wanda. Thank you very much for having me on. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely as well. And I am so intrigued by both the book and by your research program. I actually want to start with talking about the research program first. So the scientist in me is coming out. Here we go. Tell us a little bit about that research, particularly the research that inspired this book on switchcraft. What were you studying? Sure. So I'm a a cognitive uh, psychologist. So that really means that we we are really interested in how do we process information? The world presents us with lots of different information. Um, How do we select out what's important? How do we ignore what's not important? So looking at the attention system, the memory system, how we interpret ambiguity. You know, the social world can be quite ambiguous. So how how do we interpret that? Um, So I was doing a lot of very basic research in in cognition, um, but I became very interested over the years in anxiety and depression in in particular. And what uh, we were discovering was that we were looking at selective biases. So when people are selectively tuning in to the more negative things, if you like, rather than the more positive things. So we can look at that on, on three levels. We can look at that in the attention system. So literally, when you open the newspaper, do you instantly tune into the bad news or do you tend to turn into the, the better news? Um, you, we can also look at that in terms of selective memory. So we know that, for example, people who are prone to depression tend to 
to selectively remember the more negative stuff um, that has happened to them. Um, and they will really forget a lot of the more positive things or the kind of more benign things that happen. Um, and likewise, in terms of interpreting ambiguity, we know that anxious people in particular tend to always go for the more negative interpretation. If somebody says something that you know might be a compliment or it might be an insult, it's kind of a bit ambiguous. They don't quite know how to read it. An anxious person will always go for the more negative interpretation. So, so what, what we kind of realized was that um, because of these biases, you know, more or less similar things were happening to different people. But because of the biases, you get an impression of the world that's actually a bit different to what the world may actually be. So if you're constantly tuning into the negative and remembering the negative and interpreting things in a negative way, in terms of your consciousness, you'll think the world is actually much more threatening, much more negative place than perhaps somebody who has a, a more benign kind of bias or a more positive bias. Um, so these biases were really are, are, are very fundamental in anxiety and depression. And a lot of my work was trying to identify and understand those biases. And then, of course, develop interventions to try and, and change them. Now, things that we all know about, like talking therapy, for example, CBT therapy is focused a lot on challenging your negative beliefs and trying to change some of these kind of biases. But my work was trying, I suppose, to get in at a lower level, if you like. So we were using computerized training tasks to try and really um, undo these biases in attention that people actually aren't consciously aware of. So the kind of experiments I do is, you know, I flash up images, some of which are negative, some are positive, um, and people are pressing buttons um, in response to these images. And when you ask people, they say, oh, you know, I was kind of vaguely aware there were some nasty things there and some positive positive things, but actually it didn't make much difference to my reaction times. But actually, when you look at the reaction times, there are big differences in a very consistent way. Um, but they're only 30 or 40 milliseconds. So, you know, they're not actually in your conscious awareness. So I realized um, I had a kind of real insight um, over many years. So I was very, very focused on this idea of these negative biases were the thing. We needed to find ways of changing these negative biases. And then a colleague of mine in Israel published a really nice study many years ago where he also looks at a lot of these negative biases in anxiety. But he did a study with um, military personnel and looked at, you know, very strong negative biases in people who are going into a battle scene, soldiers going into a, a battle scene, which, of course, if you think about that, it's really appropriate. You know, when you're in a genuinely dangerous, threatening situation, if you're on your own late at night and you hear something like maybe you think it's a broken window at night, of course, you might think it's a burglar, it's a threat, you need to investigate, you need to pay attention to that. Um, but of course, what he found with the soldiers was that they could switch off that bias then in term in when they were in a safe environment. And of course, I had a real insight then. So you know, I'd kind of been guilty myself of starting to think in a quite a rigid kind of way, because of course I had thought, okay, it's all about the negative biases. That's the important thing. We need to get rid of the negative biases. But what I realized from his research and from some other research we did as well, um, I realized it's actually it's not the bias as such that's the problem, it's the inflexibility of that bias. Bias. It's the fact that anxious people tend to be biased in threatening situations, which is quite appropriate, but they're also negatively biased in perfectly safe situations. So when they're at home, when they're in a perfectly safe situation, there's no kind of real danger. They still have these strong negative biases. So, of course, it's the kind of rigidity or the inflexibility, the inability to switch off those biases when actually, you know, you're very safe. So I kind of really had a big insight and thought, actually, it's all about um, agility and flexibility rather than the, the, the biases per se, because, you know, the biases themselves aren't aren't necessarily bad in themselves. In the right context, they're actually very good. And, and that's really 
you know, what kind of drove my realization that actually, you know, I needed to start studying mental flexibility a bit more. Um, and that's, of course, what really inspired the book to try and put a lot of that science into, that into what I call switchcraft. So, okay. All right. I love that story. I want to go backwards a little bit just to make sure everybody has understood, because I think this is just such profound information about human beings and human functioning. So I know we think as human beings that I look out on the world, I see what's there in the world, and I have a very veridical and accurate interpretation of the world, view of the world. But that isn't how our brains work. And we can prove, we've proven for years that you pay attention to some things and completely ignore other things. Absolutely. So, so some uh, some people may have seen the famous video where you're counting the basketball bounces or throws and the gorilla yeah. walks through the scene and you don't even see the gorilla. Okay, right. there is an example of the fact that what we see is actually based on what we're looking at and what we're looking for. Yes. So we know that we're not, don't have an accurate attention system. Okay. That's right. Now, the second thing that people will probably be surprised by, unless you study this, is you tend to believe, I believe, my memories are accurate. Obviously, my, oh, I might miss a date. Okay, fine. But the event itself is accurate. And what you said is accurate. What I said is accurate. But what we know in studying memory is that they're anything other than accurate. There are Absolutely. a few very special occasions where it might be accurate. But it's faulty un, in uncanny ways. It's faulty, really, truly faulty. So, all right, there's another one where you might think you're doing a better job than you probably are. All right. And then the third system you talked about is this ambiguity. When there's ambiguity, yes. and I could interpret in one way or in another way, and that we tend to see things in one side or another side. And the, probably the best examples of that that people can relate to are the images that you can see like the woman or the man in the same image, depending on what you focus on. I don't know, or the vase or the face, I think. That's right. That's it. Yeah, exactly. That There's a lot of those. Yeah. There's a lot of those different kinds of things. And once you see it in one way, you can't unsee it anymore. So exactly. there's a sense of understanding about, you know, our, again, yeah. our interpretation can be quite different, a meaning that we ascribe to people. So I find this fascinating, A, that we have these inaccuracies. Yes. And then B, that when I'm anxious or depressed, I'm going to see only the negative side and not see the positives that are present. Yes. Yeah, and that is it is fascinating, and and I, I think you're right. I think uh, we now realise that, of course, if if our brain was to, um, if you like, code everything and remember everything accurately, we would need a huge brain. We'd be like a dinosaur, I think. So it's and so that's the problem. We have to deal with you know a lot of complex information. This, if you think across your entire life, the amount of information you've remembered. Um, so the way the brain handles that is, of course, a lot of stuff is relegated down into kind of like pre-conscious processing, if you like. It's kind of still there in a way. Our brain is very good at, at remembering big data type of information. And that's kind of, I talk a little bit in the book at some point about that that drives our intuition a lot of the time. If we tune into that, the brain often will have remembered, you know, when particular sights and sounds are connected together. But that's not actually within our conscious awareness and, and we can't possibly. And you're absolutely right about memory. I mean, I remember, you know, studying psychology. I, I found that fascinating. And we now know pretty well that um, memories are reconstructed. Every time you think of a past event, you're actually reconstructing it based on on 
on subsequent information you have, you know, so when we look back. So you're absolutely right. We're not accurate. We think we're accurate, but actually, um, you know, because we've reconstructed the memories, it's they've just kind of changed. Right. Um, and, and it is kind of really interesting. And I think, you know, I found that really interesting that with anxiety, a, a lot of and depression, a lot of the problems are to do with how people are processing that information. You know, it's it's not so much, as I say, that more bad things have happened to them, but they absolutely have that impression that more bad things have happened. Yeah, Whereas, you, you know, you find, so I've actually shifted my research kind of recently in the last kind of five years or so, we've been doing a lot of work on resilience. So studying very resilient people and very mentally strong people, if you like. Um, and there we find kind of not, sometimes the opposite, but not always the opposite, actually. But we, we find there that, um, you know, people tend to almost just ignore the, the more negative stuff and they kind of focus on the on the positive. So in, in a very deep way, not in a kind of a, a trivial way. Right. And and so that really does. I mean, I've always found that fascinating that, you know, more or less the same things could happen to a lot of us. But actually, the way we react to that, the way we interpret it can be very different. And that can make a huge difference in, in our lives in, in all sorts of ways. Well, I think the best way for people to relate to this is if you're in a really depressed, you know, you're you're you've you're just in the funk and you've been in the funk for a couple of days. I'm gonna make this a little bit more trivial compared to somebody who's seriously with suicide or serious anxiety. But you know, in that negative mood, something happens and you just emphasize the negative of it. See, there you go again. Exactly. Or, you know, nothing good ever happens to me. It always goes bad or some version and you, you just ignore it. So you're overemphasizing the negative. And equally, if I'm faced with an astronomically difficult situation, like having lost both legs in a bombing, let's say, yeah. and I wake up in the hospital, had the peak of my performance as an athlete, and suddenly I'm not at the peak of my performance as an athlete, yeah. I can surprisingly focus on what's going to happen next? What are we going to do? What are the small wins? And kind of work my way out of it, which is part of what we mean by resilience. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. All right. Now I want to come to the final piece. That's the aha for the book. Cause I just want to emphasize this one bit more having emphasized that a, we don't have clear attention or consistent attention. We don't have consistent memory and we don't have consistent interpretation. But now we have this notion that I could be hyper vigilant for everything that could go wrong on alert. Yes. Appropriate to the situation. Leave that situation and switch to the polar okay. opposite. Everything is great. Life is good. There's no disasters, looming threat. And, and that notion of switching seems to me to be incredibly powerful for surviving modern life. Absolutely. Well, I think, and that's of course exactly what the book is about. And, and as I said initially, the insight I had was in terms of that type of research, looking at these quite low-level biases and how we switch from. You know, it's it's not that we're always negative. It's it's the ability to switch when we're in a safe environment. But then, of course, I realised it it broadens out quite a bit. So there's a lot of very good evidence-based techniques in psychology, um, and you know, people are all of us are often looking for the one thing that's going to really improve our lives. So you know, yeah. people. 
think, oh, mindfulness is the thing. If I do mindfulness meditation, that's going to be a solution. And um, your growth mindset, um, there's all sorts of techniques, all of which have a really good evidence base. But of course, what I realized is none of these are really good for every situation that life might face us with, because your life is very complex. We've we've got all sorts of different roles throughout our lives. Um, you know, we were, we have different types of challenges. And the analogy I use in the book actually is about going out on a golf course. So if you think about going out on a golf course, um, I don't actually play golf myself, but I've, I actually grew up beside a golf course in, in Dublin. And I remember always wondering why on earth are people taking all of these a big pile of golf clubs out you know there's a whole whole pile of golf clubs and of course it makes sense you know sometimes you have to make a long drive sometimes you're putting sometimes you're trying to swing out of a bunker so you need a different club for every kind of challenge you're faced with on the on the golf course and um, if you went out with just one club you know you'd be brilliant at one particular type of shot but actually you'd be hopeless at all of the other types of shots so i kind of realized you know life is a bit like that as well you know we're, we're faced with lots of different challenges and um, so there isn't one size fits all solution to those challenges. Um, and of course, we try and do that. We try and pick something like mindfulness or whatever, whatever it is and say, okay, that's going to be my solution. And of course, it can be a great solution in certain situations, but the chances are it's not going to be good for every situation. So I think that's the whole kind of point of switchcraft, I guess. It's about you. Know, it's about having, I suppose, a diversity, a, a diversity in your mind. If you think about investment, like people often say that if chaos happens in the markets and things are very uncertain, the best thing to do is to diversify your portfolio as much as you can. You literally don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, and I think, I suppose, I kind of have the same idea with mental diversity. So you know, we need a lot of different strategies and lots of different kind of whether they're cognitive processes or whether they're actual physical strategies we can do we need a whole diverse range of things and then i think the trick is understanding the best solution given the situation we're in you know finding the best way forward given whatever situation we might be faced with and um, so i think it's really that that agility that flexibility is is key really but but we can only have that flexibility if you have a range of options available to you mm-hmm. So you need to have a very diverse range of skills and and coping strategies. All right. So help us understand what kind of coping strategies do work. So we know mindfulness. We know the notion of growth mindset that I'm going to see that I can develop and learn more things and I'm not fixed. It's not an end of the story. What else do you know works on some occasions? Well, I think a lot of and a lot of the work, you know, just going back to the work I've been talking about, resilience. Um I, th- I think a lot of the time it's just it's 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 finding the right thing for the right situation that you're in really, and and having the ability to use the resources that are available to you. I think I think we often misunderstand resilience in a sense, and we think that you know resilience is almost like some kind of magic juice if you like that's inside us, and that some people will just push through and will be very resilient, and um, whereas others are less resilient. Whereas actually the resilient people tend to be the people who have a good sense of what do they need? What kind of information do I need in this situation? So if you think about it, I know that you have a lot of, of business people and entrepreneurs who, who who listen to your podcast, Wanda. Um, and, you know, I think in, in business, you know, sometimes you may not have some vital information that you actually need. So, so having an, a sense of that and going to an expert in that field and saying, OK, I need to know about this. I need to bring somebody into my team who actually understands this. I think sometimes that's the kind of thing that um, is really important in in resilience. There was a fascinating study done a couple of years ago in Australia, actually, 
where they looked at resilience in um, a lot of uh, resilient uh, in in Syrian refugees who'd come from Syria in the most awful conditions, as you can imagine. They were in a war zone. They had to leave. They had to walk, I think, for a month, you know, and then finally they ended up in, in Australia where they were given asylum and a lot of families with young children. And you can imagine the level of stress they, they had gone through. And so the study, the researchers studied these people over, I think it was about a four or five year period. It was quite a decent period of time. And they found one big factor predicted resilience and it was really, really interesting. And that factor was having a child that spoke English was mm-hmm. the big factor that predicted resilience. And of course, when you think about it, it makes absolute sense. Because if you had a child who could speak English, that meant that they were able to speak to some friends at school, they would often go home and talk to parents, and they would be able to access the resources. You know, they would, they would because they had that language, they were able to just access in a very simple way that actually, you can apply for this, you know, a parent might say, oh, does your mother know, you know, you can apply for this kind of benefit. Whereas if they don't speak the language, they just didn't have access mm-hmm. to any of that information. So it was something simple as that you know and that's the point that the, the the kind of factors that lead to resilience can be quite different in different situations so that's why it's quite difficult to say like when you ask you know what actually works it's you know what works in in, in that situation what worked is being able to speak the language you know whereas actually you wouldn't necessarily have predicted that beforehand you might have not even have thought of that and right. and so, it kind of did it kind of did surprise the researchers they were looking at all sorts of psychological things and finance and lots of different things but actually that was the one big thing and of course when they saw that they realized of course it makes a lot of sense um so i think it's those kind of things and that's i think why um doing a lot of this fundamental research is really important. Yeah. Reminds me of Eric McNulty's work. Um, We're looking at disaster events and what is it that people did to survive those disaster events. Now his is not experiment as much as it is anecdotal stories and investigations of those stories and so on. And one of the qualities that he says, apart from a belief that I can do something different and a sense of hope on optimism, we might say that things will change and improve, even if they don't go back to what they always were. But the third quality is this broad network of people that you can tap into. And this is the same idea as your resilience, as your resources idea. And he said, it never ends up being your closest family and friends that have the Mm -hmm. idea about how you can handle or develop or solve this next piece of the problem. It's that breadth out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of the diversity. You know, so if you have a diverse range of friends, a range of people from different backgrounds, and I think all of us tend to, you know, um, seek out like minded people. We tend to, you know, have friends who are pretty similar to ourselves in a way. But I think actually it's very, very powerful to have have friends and acquaintances and people we know who who are actually are very different from us, maybe come from very different backgrounds, different perspectives. Um, because as you say, you know, people with Will, will come up with quite different kind of solutions. Yes. Um, and, and often they're the absolutely right ones that we may not have thought about. So I think you're right. You know, it's it's um, it's it's really um, being as diverse as possible and looking for those kind of resources around us and those social resources. Social resources. Yeah. And in places that you would never have guessed at all. Okay. So the idea is, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what is it that uncertainty does to our thinking process? So you've already talked about the fact that when we're looking at ambiguous situations, and we have anxiety and depression, we're going to take the most negative interpretation. 
Yes. But in general, do you have evidence of what uncertainty does to our thinking process? Is there more to say? Yes. Yeah, there absolutely is. So so uncertainty really does scare us. We know that it's, it's quite scary and it kind of makes sense because we want to be safe. We want to be secure. And um, so we don't like to be uncertain. But of course, the world is uncertain. There's no way around that. I think I can tell you a little story, actually, which which actually made me laugh out loud. And I was when I was in London, I was on the train in London and just read a, a story in, in the uh, the newspaper that was on the train. Um, and it was about a bunch of pretty incompetent uh, robbers. They'd actually held up a store and, and robbed a store. And one of the uh, robbers was um, a bus driver. And they'd actually had his bus. He'd actually taken a bus as their getaway vehicle. <laughs> so having successfully um, raided this store, um, and I think it was an armed robbery, actually, but thankfully nobody was injured. Um, they, they made their getaway in this bus. Um, so the police were quickly onto them. And the police realized very, fairly quickly that actually the bus was going its normal route. It wasn't necessarily getting out of there as quick as it could, but it was actually going its its normal kind of route. So, of course, they were apprehended very quickly. And it definitely made me laugh out loud. But I realized, Wanda, that actually it, it, it did show us a real fundamental principle from psychology. And that is that when we're under pressure and when we're really under a lot of stress, we tend to refer to what's familiar. We tend to refer to to the to rigidity. We tend to be quite rigid in how we think. So that bus driver was obviously under a lot of pressure, um, and of course just went his normal route. He, he just reverted to the to automatic pilot and reverted to right. the familiar. And that's the thing that you know uncertainty does to us. Like when we're in a really uncertain situation, when suddenly things change, particularly if it's a crisis type of situation, um, we tend to absolutely refer to the familiar. We rely on habit as much as we can, um, and sometimes that can be quite useful because it gives our brain more energy and, and and resources, if you like, to to look elsewhere and try and figure out what the solution is. But it can also work against us in a way because it may be that you know actually the 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 familiar ways of dealing may not actually be very effective, you know, and very sadly, there's some tragic um, evidence of that when it's quite common in big fires in big, say, in shopping malls and in, in hotels and things people will always try and exit the way they came in. So they'll, and so actually it's often the case that people have been found, you know, unfortunately killed um, in situations where um, there was an exit very close to them, but actually they turned around and ran out to go yeah, the way right. they came in. Because they hadn't kind of really been aware of the surroundings. Yeah. So I think yeah. sometimes those things can really turn against us, but in, in a less kind of dramatic way, I think reverting to the familiar isn't always a good thing. It often right. it sometimes doesn't actually help us. You know, we, we get into a bit of rut and keep trying, Trying to solve the problem in the same way, even though again and again we're getting the signal is not actually working. Right. That um, I think you cite this in your book. There are a whole bunch of studies where I give people math problems to solve, and you can solve the problem with a particular technique. And after I've had you solve seven to ten problems with that technique, I give you another problem that can't be solved with that technique. And yes. people won't recognize the alternative. They stick with the old right. familiar, even though it's just an experiment with Absolutely. seven iterations of the same thing. Absolutely. It's really fascinating. It also speaks to the title of this show, Out of the Comfort Zone, and about getting out of your comfort zone. And so when you are trying to push yourself out of the comfort zone, you are going to have to get less rigid, meaning more willing to do things that are not familiar or in ways that are not familiar. Absolutely. And I think that's what's so unnerving about getting out of the comfort zone. 
Absolutely. It really is. It absolutely is. So it's, as you say, we our absolute tendency is to stick and it's very comforting. You know, it, it, it's comforting because we're familiar with it. But actually, there are times when we absolutely need to push ourselves. And, um, and that's the only way to progress, really. Okay. All right. Fascinating. All sorts of interesting data and insights on this from anxiety and depression to escaping fires to heaven forbid, um, an escape route on a robbery <laughs> that come out of this research. <laughs> I am joking about that one, obviously not seriously. <laughs> Now, when we talk about resilience, does that do different things to our thinking processes? Well, I think, again, you know, I think we we tend to, you know, resilience, because if you think of resilience, resilience is about using the available resources in, in a sense. So it's kind of a different thing every every time. And I think there's three kind of components to resilience. There's kind of the, the individual stuff we can do ourselves, and there are things we can do ourselves, and there are characteristics that we know are correlated with being more resilient. But there's also um, your immediate uh, family or your immediate um, kind of social circle, if you like, that can really make a difference if you're living in a, in a family where say there's a lot of violence or there's alcoholism or there's a lot of problems that's going to lead to much less resilience for you than if you're in a very supportive in kind of you know steady type of family environment and then the wider society is really important um, and again a lot of research has shown that you know the the um, level of corruptness of the police force for example is an absolute key to resilience so if if you're in a country where you can't trust the police that's devastating for people because you, you have nowhere to go if, if things go wrong. Whereas if, if you're in a country where you can kind of, you know, you can trust the police force and, and the social services, for example, well, then, you know, you've got a much better chance in life, really. So so all of those things do make a big difference to us. But I think it's it's a very complex interaction between all of those things. So, that, of course, there are individual things we can do, but there are also these societal things and also our immediate our immediate kind of family is really important as well. Right, right. There's a whole, so much to say about the impact of that immediate family and kids who grow up in very difficult circumstances and then how they learn the resilience techniques, even though they're not necessarily there in that moment. Yes. And I think I remember um, one story in your book about a young kid who grew up with a mother who was could be violent on occasions. Yes. Do you want to tell the story? Yes, yeah, if, if I can remember it. <laughs> But I, you know, he was one of the people who, who was involved in one of our our studies, and uh, yeah, he, he his mother had was very very violent and and very um she was a drug addict, so she was very um very loving on one level, but actually when she got involved in drugs or when she didn't have drugs, she could get very um erratic, um and so he became extremely good at noticing even the most subtle signs of when she was on the turn, if you like. So like a lot of the time she was fine. Um, but but he, it, it, you know, we, we measured a lot of these kind of um, biases. We actually did a lot of brain imaging with him. And and he was able to pick up really, really subtle signals um, that you know things were changing, um, which was kind of very sad for him. But of course, it was very, very protective. And, and that was actually a research project where we haven't really spoken about this yet. But that's the research project where we found that sometimes having a certain degree of adversity in your life can actually make you more resilient as you go through life. And he was part of that study, actually, where we found that, you know, if you've always been very protected, if you're from a very kind of um, have a very supportive family, I mean, that's generally a very good thing. I'm not saying that's not a good right. thing. 
sometimes what happens is um, you know, people have never really had to figure things out for themselves. You know, if children are brought up, they're they're driven to school, they're protected, you know, they're not really out. And then and we found that a little bit in in, in university. Sometimes you get some 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 people come to university and it's the first time they've had to deal with a lot of problems or somebody might criticize them or somebody, you know, might not actually behave in the way they're expecting. And because they've never experienced that before, they're absolutely floundering and they really they, they're struggling with it. Well, somebody like him, he turned out to be actually he was actually surprisingly resilient um, because I think he'd learned to cope and, and he'd learned to pick up the signs very early and get himself out of that situation. So he, he realized she wasn't the mother wasn't actually necessarily directly violent towards him. She wouldn't seek out kind of violence. But if he happened to be around when she was, you know, taking drugs or whatever, then she could become very volatile. So he had learned to get himself out of that situation way before that came. So actually, it was a very protective thing. So even though it's obviously not a very nice situation to be in all the way through his life. He, he actually ended up being a very successful entrepreneur, funnily enough. So he, he went in and, and because he was able to literally roll with the waves in a sense that he was able to pick up, he was very good at intuition, if you like, and picking up early signs that things might be going wrong or things might be going very well. Um, and so it was a good outcome in his case. Right. Um, but but yeah, but it was it just showed you that that kind of that kind of situation can lead you to really develop those quite quite specific type of um, abilities to process information in 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 a in actually a very accurate way. Yeah, what I think to consistent with your thesis about switchcrafting that the notion is I want to be on alert on some occasions and then I want to be off of alert. I want to Absolutely. with I if I remember the story correctly with him, he was really hyper around recognizing signals in his mother, but when those signals were not there, he actually had the ability to just relax. So he didn't walk Absolutely. around being neurotic all the time about what's going to go wrong here in this moment. Exactly. And again, you see the power of that switching between the hypervigilance and something else. Absolutely. All right. Yes. Elaine, this is a perfect place to take a break. So my guest today is Elaine Fox, a most fascinating book called Switchcraft, The Hidden Power of Mental Agility. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how do we develop better resilience. And I also want to talk about this question I keep asking, which is, do you switch or do you stick? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Elaine Fox. The book we're talking about is Switchcraft, The Hidden Power of Mental Agility. Just as a kind of quick and very simplistic recap, the notion is that resilience comes because I have a multitude of techniques I'm going to use, not just mindfulness, but a multitude of techniques that I will use to apply to any given situation. And that I am looking at the resources that are around me and how I use those resources for the situation that I'm in to see other alternatives, see other possibilities. And it's also the notion that I don't want to be on hyper alert for everything to go wrong all the time. That instead, I want that ability to switch between modes, depending upon the situation, depending upon the context. And that's the ideal piece for resilience. Now, we also just talked about in the case of the story of the uh, young guy we were just describing, sometimes adversity actually helps develop resilience because you learn how to use resources to look out for yourself. And sometimes, you know, having a social context around you that helps you figure out how to navigate things can also be really useful and so on. So now we're not advocating that everybody go out and have adversity, but a little can often help along the way. So Elaine, resilience how are there other ways of going about developing a resilience well i think there are lots of ways and again just going back to the research the um one of the things that has been shown to to one of the personal characteristics is is, is important for resilience is having a sense of of personal agency so having a sense that you can actually make a difference in in the world around you and again if you look at the people who are again prone to depression for example it's very common that they just feel they have no no input at all into what happens to them in life they feel they're being battered around by life and they really have no control over things and there's a lot of quite interesting research on that. So I think, you know, anything you can do to develop your personal agency, the sense that you do have a control. And, and even though we've actually done experiments and several people have done experiments where, you know, you you we flash up kind of a sequence of different lights and people are pressing buttons. And the question is, um, do you think you're influencing, are your button presses influencing the sequence of lights? And it turns out it's totally random, of course, you know, but people have sometimes have the impression that they are controlling things to think, oh, I think if I do this sequence, that's actually making difference but the really interesting thing is the fact that they really aren't having that difference doesn't actually make any difference just having a sense of control is very empowering it actually people just feel more empowered and that's that's a key feature to resilience so resilient people tend to have that sense that actually you know i do have a bit of control over um what happens to me and generally in life that is true actually we can we can control some things and um, but even if it's illusory 
it it is interesting that that's genuine sense is is kind of quite empowering um so anything we can do to kind of improve that kind of sense of control sense of agency is is really important and of course a lot of the of what i talk about in switchcraft is about mental agility and and trying to improve our agility and our flexibility as much as we can so i've given hopefully the book is pretty packed full of lots of different exercises to try and help us become more agile which i hope will kind of help people yeah. so very simple things for example um you know we all know if you think back to a time where you were quite upset say you had an argument with a friend or you fell out with your children or something something happened um you know we 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 interpret that in a in a particular way and again this is a very typical technique that comes from a kind of a talking therapy approach a simple thing to do is simply try and come up with a different interpretation of that event so let's just imagine you know your friend didn't call you back you were going to go out for a drink maybe and you but your friend didn't call you back so you might have made some negative interpretation that oh she's not really that interested in you she's more interested in other things and was actually you might interpret that in a different way you know maybe she was actually just really busy maybe somebody was ill and she was really concerned about them and just forgot um you know there's a whole range of different ways you can interpret that so i think just practicing that so just thinking of some event ideally a personal event that's actually happened to you and really thinking okay what's another way I could explain that is there another interpretation of that and then once you've done that try to do it again like maybe come up with two or three or four different interpretations and if you do that on a regular basis about all sorts of things you know good things and bad things it just starts loosening your brain up a bit it starts getting your brain to train yourself to almost try to see things from different perspectives you know and try to really um you know just interpret things in different ways that as we were talking about earlier we tend to get a little bit rigid and and that goes for our thinking as well we we tend to interpret things in a, a quite rigid way so by by doing that exercise you know, it, it just kind of loosens our brain up a little bit. Um, and some of the research that I personally love, actually, because I don't do enough of it, some of the research shows to to get into other people's perspectives and to learn that is actually to read fiction. There's a lot of good research now showing that if you read fiction, that's actually a really good way of, of learning um, to see things from different perspectives. Um, because, of course, if you think about it, if you're reading a good novel, you tend to be seeing things through the eyes of the main character. You, you know, you're, you're walking in their shoes, you're seeing things that way they're seeing things and particularly if that character is very different to you if it's somebody maybe a different gender or someone from a totally different background who maybe sees things in a very different way that's actually quite a good fun way of of just learning to see things from from different perspectives which of course people who um, do method acting so actors really know about this they really immerse themselves in different characters and so they really kind of learn to really see things from other perspectives so and that could be that could be very good for your agility. Um, and then there's other exercises I've put in there um, which can also be quite useful about just learning how to switch more. So, you know, we know that the ability to switch is really important. And there's two things with that. First of all, um, switching is is quite draining of energy. So we should remember that. So as you know, what I don't think I need to tell you, but we, we all know that multitasking is a bit of a myth. You know, we often think we can do all these different things at the same time. Actually, we're not doing that. What we're actually doing is we're switching very rapidly from one thing to the other. And that's actually quite draining of energy. So one of the tips I give in the book, and the research really shows this, is that when you've got a number of different 
things to do throughout the day, you need to make sure you have a good gap between them. So just literally, once you've finished one thing, make sure you maybe get up, make a cup of coffee, ideally go outside and walk around a bit if, if you can. Um, but just try and have that block um, gap between different things um, because that switching does drain you of energy. You run out of energy very quickly. Um, but one of the exercises I give in the book is kind of, um, it's it's almost the opposite of that in a sense. It's deliberately kind of focusing on switching rapidly from one thing to the other. So you can do something like maybe come up with three different um, tasks that um, you know, don't take too long. So maybe like writing an email, uh, maybe calling to make a restaurant booking, you know, three different things like that that might um, you know, take you five, 10 minutes each. And so what you do is you simply you set a phone to go off every maybe two minutes or every three minutes um, set a timer to go off. And so you start your first task. And as soon as the timer goes off, you have to switch to the next task. So even if you haven't finished the first one, you switch. And then likewise, once the timer goes again, you switch to the next task and you just keep going like that. And that's actually a very good way of learning to switch very rapidly. As I said, generally, it's not a good thing. You do need a gap between them normally in life. But as an exercise, that's actually a very good cognitive training exercise. And we've done some small experiments to try and look at the effectiveness of that. Um, And it can be very effective. And particularly the more sophisticated version of that is if you can set up a timer to go off randomly. (laughs) So it's not the rigid every two minutes because you you very quickly get used to that. You get a sense of what you could do in two minutes. So if the timer goes off randomly, um, you know, that actually, and, and that kind of gets you a little bit used to uncertainty as well, as we were talking earlier about uncertainty. So it's kind of like an exercise that has two things. It's teaching a little bit about how to deal with uncertainty in a very simple way, but it's also, you know, training you to switch very rapidly. So I think there's lots of exercises in, in the book um, that, you know, just try and help your mental agility. And the more you can help your mental agility, I think, um, and really, I think perspective is important as well. Like literally training yourself to genuinely try and come up with different interpretations, come up with different perspectives. Um, that w- will really will help you be much more agile and to react more quickly when you are faced with a difficult situation that maybe you have to make that decision. Do you stick or do you switch? And sometimes sticking is the right thing. You know, Sometimes being gritty and pushing on is absolutely the right thing to do. But there are some times when that turns into literally banging your head against a brick wall. I don't know if you have that phrase in the States, but yes, you know, we, yes, use that, we, do. Yeah, we use that phrase. And um, so there are times when actually, you know, and I'm sure we've all been there. We've all been in a situation where we we know we stayed with that situation longer than we should have, whether yeah. it was a job, we were just, it was going nowhere, or maybe it was a relationship, which, you know, but I mean, most of us have probably experienced that, that we, we just stuck a little bit too long with something where we should have really made the decision to change much earlier. Right, right. I think we can all relate to that one. Um, you packed a lot in there. So I'm going to come back yes, for sorry. a bit. <laughs> so I want to talk back to this notion about um, changing your interpretation, so, which is the first thing you said as a way of yes. developing agility. Now, there's a bit of a game with this that says, I think this happened because of X, or I think this person was feeling the following. And then yeah. what's another possible thing that could be an interpretation of why they did or why they said what they said. And that is a great exercise, but it also has massive payoff if you practice it day in and day out in the work world. And it's a technique I use in coaching all the time. Yes. So if there's a relationship that's not working particularly well, yeah, we have an interpretation for why somebody said or did something. And it's usually one or two types. 
I usually only hear the same answer every single time when I ask, what do you think was going on? I get one of two answers. That's it. Talk about rigidity. But the moment I can get people to see two and three other plausible possibilities, suddenly they're opened up to a whole range of different actions that they had not even considered before. Yeah. And it is often the break point for um, trying to get that relationship on a better footing. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's it's surprisingly powerful. It seems so simple in a way, but actually it is hugely powerful. Yeah. Right. Um, and one of my guests just recently um, talked about the ways in which we get ourselves down a judgment track. And yes. that when we go down the judgment track, we are missing other options that we might want to consider and things that we might look. It's the same principle here. This absolutely. notion of the mental agility to see other interpretations. I think that absolutely. was super powerful, super, super powerful. And it, it links in a little bit. Sorry to interrupt you, Wanda, but it, it links in a little bit to um, like our beliefs as well. The same thing happens with our beliefs. Like often, and often we believe things just because maybe our parents believe things or we've always believed this. Um, and sometimes we don't challenge that. Sometimes we ask, well, actually, what is the evidence for that? You know, and, and and I think that could be really powerful to, to just shake up our belief structure in a way right. sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, I often talk about um, Seligman's work on research, particularly his learned optimism and this notion that you say, here's this negative outcome and this is this consequence or belief I have yeah. about it. And then you challenge that, like, where's the evidence? Yes. What are the alternatives? It's the same principle that you're talking Absolutely. about here. And it's a complete op- my, op- mind opener and gives it you is. so much more energy and ideas on what to do. Okay. Now, I want to make sure we're all clear about this multitasking because this is one of my pet peeves in people that I coach. It doesn't work, folks. Yes. All you're doing is switching. I'm looking, attending to A and then I'm tending to B and then I'm tending to A and then I'm tending to B. And our brains just don't process two things simultaneously. And you're right. It takes energy. So I dare you to try it. Those are listening without multitasking. (laughs) But what's interesting is that you can actually train your brain to switch more efficiently, to get more comfortable with switching between tasks. And that's what I find so fascinating about the examples that you gave. So I have three routine tasks, like reading an article, writing something, and I don't know, adding numbers. And I can go randomly between those on a timer out of my control. And that just trains my brain to get comfortable with switching. Yes, exactly. And I think particularly in very, that can be very useful. If you if you do that on a regular basis, you do get much more used to it. And as you say, it's primarily with routine type tasks. Um, but what, what happens is in, in a, say, a crisis situation where you have to make a lot of decisions very quickly, one after the other, and maybe keep a lot of different things in your head, that's when that can become very useful when you do genuinely have to switch. You know, a lot of the time in, in, in our work lives or our lives, we don't really have to switch that rapidly. But, right. but when things do suddenly happens. So if the, I don't know, if, if the market collapses and you have to make lots of investment decisions, you know, you might have to, um, or, you know, if something kind of major happens, um, you know, you may have to make some big decisions quite quickly. And so I think the more you've practiced that, the more you've trained yourself to switch like that, and um, the easier that will become. It'll just, your whole, your whole system just gets much more fluid, really, and you get more used to it. Well, I think about um, particularly senior executives who are going from one topic, one meeting, right back to back to the next topic at the next meeting, and the ability to shift your attention, you know, yeah. your focus, your understanding, your processing rapidly between those two different topics, pick up and move on with the next one. 
I, we yeah. could all use skills in that one for sure. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm actually head of quite a big psychology school down here in Adelaide now. And, uh, and that's one thing I find, you know, we, we're actually going through a big university restructuring at the moment. So there's endless meetings um, with quite different things being discussed at each meeting. So literally, I often find myself going from one thing to the other and suddenly having to think about a whole different set of issues. Um, and it is really difficult. It's genuinely just switching very rapidly, which is why I think you can get very drained by the end of the day, because you've literally been switching very, very quickly from one thing to the other. You know, it's uh, absolutely too. OK, now I have to come to your last point, which is my main question of the day. So I have the choice when I'm faced with stuff going wrong of sticking the course, staying with it, persevering, not giving up, just dogged head down, go. And sometimes that works. Or I have the course of switching, switching my brain, switching my thinking, trying a different angle, changing my goal. How do you know which one is which? How do I know which one to do, Elaine? Big, big question. And it's it's very, very difficult. And, and it is, it's such an important question. Do I stick? Do I switch? Um, and uh, obviously, like I talk a lot about mental agility in the book, um, but it's not, it's not being agile for its own sake. Um, you know, that would just be random if you just constantly switch just for no reason. So I think it's it's very much about um, an informed switching, an informed um, decision making. Um, so in the book, I talk, there's four kind of pillars, if you like. So mental agility is the main one, really, which we've talked quite a bit about. But that agility, agility should be informed by the other three things. And so one is, is, is situational awareness. So really being aware of the situation you're in, that's going to inform you in terms of should you stick, should you switch. So we mentioned this just briefly, but you know, tuning into your intuition is really important. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about intuition as a kind of a, like a magical, a magical kind of thing. But I think intuition actually is the like, we know that our brain is a prediction machine, we know our brain kind of predicts things, but our brain stores information right from the moment we're born, probably from even before we're born, um, about, you know, particular combinations of sights and sounds that if, if we felt good, for example, and certain smells were there or sounds were in the air. And um, so sometimes, you know, when we get these senses that a, a situation feels right or feels really good or maybe feels a bit apprehensive and we don't quite know why, that's often because our brain is kind of remembering, recalling big data, if you like, that in a previous situation when there was that particular set of events that has occurred again, we actually felt really good or we felt a bit apprehensive or something bad happened. So I think learning to dial down um, your kind of quiet your mind a little bit at times is really important. Um, and to just allow your, yourself to follow your intuition. And I think particularly in business, it's actually really important that you, especially the more experienced you are, you, you will have a lot of information, not all that you're consciously aware of, but those gut feelings can right. actually sometimes be quite accurate. And they're not designed to tell you definitely this is the right way to go, but they are designed to tell you this is probably the right way to go. It's 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 almost like a probability kind of a guide, if you like, more than saying absolutely black and white, yes or no. So I think just you know tuning into your intuition is 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 really great. important in that in that sense. I like this. I think the thing that I like so much about both the research stream and the conversation in the book okay. is this notion that flexing, shifting is actually beneficial. And getting skilled and comfortable with switching, if you will. Yes. So that I can make a more informed decision. Am I sticking because that's what it's required in this case and that's what's going to give the best outcome? Or am I sticking because I'm afraid of the unfamiliar? 
And so getting more comfortable with that agility and the situational awareness. I just think that's such a brilliant insight. That plus understanding all that we do in processing and the ways in which that leads us to biases. I think it's it's a brilliant, brilliant insight. Well, thank you, and I think I think you put that very well, actually. And that's exactly that's really the heart of it. I think is you know because a lot of the time we know we stick simply because it's familiar, and you know we don't want to change things. We don't like uncertainty, so we stick with the familiar. Um, but you know sometimes we I think asking ourselves that question is so important, as you say that you know am I sticking because actually it is the right thing, and sometimes it is the right thing, or am I just a little bit nervous about uh, going into uncertainty right. if you like and away yeah. from the familiar. Absolutely. Elaine, great conversation. My guest today, Elaine Fox, psychologist, author, head of the School of Psychology at University Adelaide. The book we're talking about, Switchcraft, The Hidden Power of Mental Agility. Um, As you can tell, I really have enjoyed this show. So thank you for being a guest. Well, likewise, I've really enjoyed it once. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And come join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone and dealing with the unfamiliar. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.